All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open up the word of God together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are amazed at the fact that we have your word before us, that you have revealed yourself down through the centuries, starting with Job and then the five books of Moses, and on through the prophets of the Old Testament. Again and again, there is a drumbeat of a prophecy and prediction of the coming Savior, the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And again and again, this was rejected. The prophets were rejected. And even today, in fulfillment of what Jesus says in the passage we study, there are millions upon millions who are hostile to your word who reject Jesus as Messiah, and who um, refuse to look at the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, the Scripture says. Father, and sometimes we in our own walk with you do the same thing. We imitate unbelievers in that way, and as such we are guilty of rejecting the prophets as well. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to your word today and that as we study it, we might come to understand more fully who Jesus Christ is, his role and purpose in coming at the first coming, and we pray that we might come to a greater understanding of what the text says and of your grace in our lives, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We are studying in Matthew in a passage that is not designed to um, for by Jesus saying it's not designed to win friends and influence people. It is his last public message. He is announcing through seven woes condemnation upon the uh, religion of the Pharisees, and by extension that is a condemnation of all religions that reject the grace of God through the provision of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. With We have studied the first six woes, and with this seventh woe, uh, Jesus is bringing these seven woes to a climactic conclusion. He is confronting the Pharisees with a history that has gone on for centuries among the uh, Israelites, among the Jewish people, in rejecting the the prophets in the Old Testament of persecuting them and murdering them. He says that in this section that they, they, that all of the prophets predicted the, the Messiah would come, and all of these predictions were complete at this time, and yet there is still a continued rejection of him as the one who fulfills these prophecies, at least as far as the second com- or first coming was concerned. 
What he says to the Pharisees in this is that this rejection of him by them also makes them culpable and responsible in the same way as their forefathers were responsible for the rejection of the prophets. They too share in that accountability and that rejection because they are rejecting him as the Messiah. And that is clear from verse 35 when he says that on you, on that generation of religious leaders, he says, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel to Zechariah. The implications of that are are profound. He is saying that that generation is responsible in some way and to some degree because they share in the history of rejection that preceded them. Then Jesus foretells their future judgment, that he's going to send more prophets, wise men, and scribes, and they too will be rejected, and they will be arrested, they will be scourged, and they will be, some will be crucified. And he says, so the implication is that those who reject those future messengers are also sh- accountable and share in the responsibility for this. And so we see that one sobering application of this is that whether a person is an unbeliever or a believer, there still remains an accountability for how we respond to what is revealed to us in God's word. And when we reject it, we are we stand in the path of those generations that rejected the prophets. And we stand in the same path as these religious leaders who shared in that Uh, responsibility and that rejection of the prophets, which emphasizes for us how important it is for us to learn the word and to respond to the word. Now, as we've seen in this last section that started at the beginning of chapter uh, 21, Jesus is presented to Israel as her messianic king, and he's rejected He is publicly presented on what we call Palm Sunday, and then he's rejected by the nation, by the national leadership that represents them, but not by all of the people. And then in this chapter, we see that Jesus is the rejecting the nation through these eight woes. The reason there's a difference there is there's that one textual problem. So everybody talks about seven woes, so there's seven plus one, as I've explained the last two weeks. And the emphasis here is on this distinction between religion versus Christianity. God hates religion. Religion is man doing the work, man going through ritual, morality, works, his own efforts, whatever he thinks of that he thinks will impress God. When God God will reject that because everything flows from the root of a corrupt sin nature. And if the root is corrupt, the fruit is corrupt. And so no matter how morally or ethically good we are, no matter how sincere we are, it all flows out of a fallen nature. And unless that's corrected, there is there is no hope. And so God corrects that. When we trust in Christ, then we are given Christ's righteousness and we're given new life, we're born again, And that is all based on grace. And that's what Christianity is God doing all of the work, and man simply accepts it by faith. This is what lies behind these seven plus one woes. 
The Pharisees are consistently described as hypocrites. And in context, that is describing those who are claiming to have a path to God, but they are rejecting it. They're preventing others from coming to Jesus as Messiah. Uh, He's offering the kingdom, and even though they believe in the kingdom, they are keeping them from coming to the kingdom. So here we come to the seventh woe. This seventh woe is the uh, climax. It is the pinnacle of these seven woes. In Matthew 23, 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous. Now, as we saw in the previous woe that began in verse 27, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So there's a uh, obvious transition from the fact that he's already talking about these tombstones to what is how they are treating these tombstones and, and monuments. In that previous section, we talked about the whitewashed tombs. This was a standard practice at that time in Second Temple Judaism was to whitewash the tombstone. So if there is a, um, uh, if there was a, a cave or there was a hollowed out area where they were, had buried in the back, then the, and a stone was rolled over the front, that was whitewashed. If somebody was buried in the ground, that was whitewashed so that it would warn those who were coming not to touch that ground because that was unclean ground because it had been corrupted by by the death that is there. The reason that death always made a person unclean in the Old Testament didn't have anything to do with with um, biology or germs or corruption or bacteria or anything like that. It was because death was the penalty for sin. It was a constant reminder of the corruption of the human uh, condition because we're all, all fallen. And so they were uh, simply whitewashing what and covering up what was on the inside, and that's what Jesus is saying that that our very nature is like dead men's bones and unclean, and you can't you can't camouflage it, you can't somehow cover it up by simply whitewashing it, which is the procedure of religion is to just cover up through uh, ritual activity or through morality or through ethics or something of that nature. And so Jesus builds on this image he's already come to, and he talks about them in terms of a current practice, and this relates to uh, two different uh, people, two different groups. He talks about the tombs of the prophets and the graves of the righteous. And these tombs refer to, on the one hand, the burial grounds for prophets from the Old Testament, and then the other group referred the righteous as a term that referred to religious leaders of the past. And these groups are have been combined before in Matthew. We've seen them mentioned in Matthew 10.41, which talks about uh, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So this was a standard distinction at that time. It's used again in Matthew 13.17, uh, many prophets and righteous men. So there was that, that, that distinction. 
So these two different words, and they treated them different. They were honoring them. They were um, building tombs for them that they would decorate and honor in a way that would uh, that would bring glory, that would indicate that they were glorifying their past. In the picture that I have uh, associated with this verse, uh, this is a picture of a cave where a number of ossuaries were found. And an ossuary is a bone box. And by the uh, first temple, I mean, excuse me, by the first century, what they were doing is when people were buried, then after a year, when the body had decomposed and all that was left of the bones was in order to conserve space, they would pull the bones together and put them in a, in a bone box. And then they were decorating with various designs these uh, these bone boxes. In fact, the high priest of this time, Caiaphas was buried in a very highly decorated bone box, which was discovered uh, archaeologically and is on display at the uh, Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem. So this uh, funerary art was very common at this particular time, and they also would paint the walls of the, of the uh, tombs and uh, write various uh, poet, po- poems and things of that nature uh, in order to bring honor and glory to these particular uh, righteous. Also, it speaks of the tombs of the prophets. This was a tomb that was built uh, during the time of the Maccabees. It's called the tomb of Zechariah, but that is not where Zechariah, who's mentioned later in this uh, in this passage, is buried. It may be another Zechariah because there were quite a number of Zechariahs during the uh, Old Testament period and up to the up to the first century. In Matthew 23:30, Jesus addresses the claim of the Pharisees. He says, "This is this is what they say. You say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets." They are saying this. Oh, we wouldn't have done that. We would not have uh, stoned them. We would not have rejected their message. Oh, we we love God. We love His Word. We would not have participated in the persecution of God's prophets. And it and Jesus is going to completely refute uh, this statement when he states it this way. He says, "If and that is." Just for the sake of argument, assuming the uh, uh, the truthfulness of that first part of the condition, and it doesn't mean that it is true, it just means you're assuming it's true for the sake of argument, that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, this is what we would have done. We would have not been partakers of them in the blood of the prophets. Now, that phrase, blood of the prophets, just is a, is a metaphor, a figure of speech for their death. So we wouldn't have been uh, participants in their death. And then Jesus uh, rejects this clearly in verse 31. He says, therefore, you are witnesses. You claim that you wouldn't have done that, but you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, as you look at that, you may say, well, wait a minute. It seems like something's missing there. It seems like I'm missing part of the argument, and that has to be provided and supplied from from, from the context. Uh, we see a parallel to this in Luke. Luke uh, writes this, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. 
Same thing. It seems like something is missing here. How is it that they are approving what their forefathers had done? Because they're doing the same thing. Their forefathers rejected the prophets and their announcement of a coming kingdom and a coming Messiah. These Pharisees have the coming kingdom being presented to them. They have the Messiah in their presence. They are doing the same thing. They are rejecting Jesus as Messiah, and they are rejecting his kingdom. So their rejection of him puts them in the path and in the flow of their forefathers who rejected the messengers of God. Now, we saw Jesus refer to this earlier in Matthew chapter 21. There's a, we studied a series of, of uh, parables where Jesus was showing the indictment against, uh, against the Pharisees after they had questioned him about their authority. And in the second parable, which is the parable of the uh, vineyard owner, he talks about this vineyard owner who... Uh, has leased out his vineyard uh, to uh, sharecroppers who are uh, uh, raising the, the grapes. And uh, when vintage time came, he sent his servants, that is the landowner who is, uh, who is God, sent his ser- servants to the vine dressers, the sharecroppers, that they might receive its fruit. They're there to get the profits from what has been made off of the, uh, off of the grapes. And in verse 35, we read, And the vine dressers took his servants. Of course, that represents the prophets of the Old Testament. They beat one, they killed one, and stoned another. Verse 36, Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did likewise to them. That means they beat them, killed them, and stoned them, not stoned another. Then last of all, he sent his son, which, of course, is a reference to uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, then he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance or his property. Because the term inheritance is a term that refers to possessions or or property. So Jesus uh, clearly indicts the Pharisees. He points out that they are hypocrites. Uh, hypocrites in claiming that they would not have rejected the prophets, they would not have participated in the um, evil deeds of their forefathers. And Jesus says, no, that's exactly what you're doing by rejecting me and rejecting the message of the kingdom. And so then in the next passage, he all but commands them to go ahead and kill him. The way he states it is this way. In verse 32, he says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. And the term fill up there basically means to bring it to completion. This process started centuries past with generation after generation that rejected the the father's prophets, rejected uh, the message of a coming Messiah, rejected the commands to repent and turn back to God. And he's saying, bring this to its logical conclusion, which means, of course, to uh, kill him. He says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. 
And then he says something in verse 33 that is really designed uh, to gain their approval and to make up with them. He calls them serpents, brood of vipers. And then he says, how can you escape the condemnation? And it's always translated hell. And this is a, a big problem. First of all, he calls them serpents. And this term immediately takes us back to the first time we see a serpent in the Bible, which is in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan uh, indwells a serpent and he sneaks up on uh, Eve and says, now, what did God say about this fruit? Did God really say you shouldn't eat it? Did God really say you would die? And she gets sucked into his line of argumentation. And as a result, she looks at the fruit and thinks it looks good. And if uh, the serpent is right, then the reason God doesn't want us to eat the fruit is we'll become like God. He's just jealous. And um, maybe I'll eat it and I'll be like God. And so when she ate of the fruit... Uh, sin enters into human history, but she is uh, she's not the head of the race, so it just enters into human history. It does it's not determinative for the fall of the race. That is Adam's responsibility as the head of the race. That's why the text talks about Jesus as the second Adam. It's the first Adam that uh, eats of the fruit. When she entices him, he eats it. She offers it to him, he eats it. And they are both then spiritually dead. When God shows up to talk to them, he concludes that part of the conversation with a series of announcements of the consequences or the judgment upon upon man. And in Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent that, that there would be this conflict between his descendants and the seed of the woman. And so he talks about the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And so when Jesus uh, takes this phrase, which he echoes from John the Baptist, he calls them serpents and then a brood of vipers. That's just the descendants of vipers. So it's the same, it's the same idea built off of Genesis 3.15. He calls them the seed of Satan. That is always going to make your your enemies feel good about you, especially if they're religious enemies, calling them the seed of Satan. And this goes back to Matthew 3, 7, that when we studied this at the very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist has come on the scene, and you remember John the Baptist has so many people coming down to see what he's doing down on the Jordan, and he's baptizing people, he's, he's offering the kingdom, uh, challenging them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who responded were, were, were baptized. And so as word got back to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had to send out an investigation team to see who this man was. Is he a genuine prophet? Is he the Messiah? Who is he? What's his message? And so this is why they showed up. And when they showed up were told in verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. So John isn't real real winsome when it comes to his approach to the religious leaders either. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
notice, wrath to come is not eternal wrath. It is, that's why I added this at the end of that verse, it's temporal judgment. It's not eternal judgment. This phrase, wrath to come, is used in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where Paul says to the Thessalonians that they, that, um, they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that phrase, wrath to come, in the context of First Thessalonians, isn't talking about eternal judgment in the lake of fire. It is talking about the future eschatological judgment that comes on man during that period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the time of Daniel's 70th week, or we call it usually the tribulation, that seven-year period that comes after the rapture of the church. It doesn't come immediately after the rapture. There's a transition period there. It will begin when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel that will allow them also to rebuild the temple. But that's all all part of the future, and we'll get into that when we get into our study of the next two chapters that focus on uh, that tribulation period. So Jesus is making this same kind of condemnation in verse 33. He says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, this term that is translated hell is not a term for the lake of fire. It is often mistaken to be that way, and we did a, I did an extensive study, one whole class on this, on Sunday morning when we did Lesson 29. So if you want more detail, go back to Lesson 29 and listen to that. But I'm just going to summarize it briefly in the next uh, 10 minutes or so. This term hell, the English word hell, comes from a, a, a Nordic term for a place where people went and were punished after they died. Uh, that really doesn't relate well at all to what the scriptural text says. So when it's talking about the condemnation of hell, we have two options. Option one is this is referring to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, which a lot of people teach. Option number two is that this refers to God's judgment in history, either on Israel or possibly even some other judgment such as the tribulation. Now, we have to understand this terminology. The word hell translates the Greek word Gehenna, but Gehenna itself is borrowed or transliterated over from the Hebrew, which is Gehenom. The word gay is the Hebrew word for valley, and the word hinom is a person's name. It was the valley of Hinnom. It was located, if you see the map here, this is the old city of Jerusalem, and the Hinnom Valley runs just to the south. You have three basic valleys that run through uh, old, old Jerusalem. You have the uh, Hinnom Valley. You have what's labeled on the map here as a central valley that was filled in, and that was the Tyropean Valley or the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And then over here to the east of the city where this blue line is located, that would be an intermittent stream. That's the valley, the, the Kidron Valley. So we're talking about the Hinnom Valley here, and that had a significant role in the history of Israel. But it makes more sense if we translate it 
if when we're translating this, don't call it hell, that's an interpretation. Just bring it over from the original and call it the Valley of Hinnom. And so in this case, Jesus would be saying that this is the condemnation of the Valley of Hinnom. Well, what is the Valley of Hinnom? What would that condemnation be? And in the Old Testament, this was a place where the Israelites sinned by committing child sacrifice and burning their sons and daughters in the fiery arms of an idol called Molech. And you see a picture of him there. Uh, this is an artist's conception where there was a, a literal furnace there where they would heat up the fire and then a the infant would be placed into the fire and would be burned alive. This was a sacrifice of their children, the next generation. And we're told that this happened quite frequently. This was one of the reasons that God brought judgment on that generation and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple at, at the first destruction, which was in 586 B.C. Second Chronicles 28.3 says that Ahaz burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire. They thought that this would placate the gods. Jeremiah 7.31 says they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Uh, and God is speaking here, and he says, which I did not command. So this was the indictment against that generation. And so for uh, for several generations, there were Israelites, kings, and others who taught the people to sacrifice, to immolate their children on the arms of Moloch. And this took place in the Valley of Hinnom. So it was indeed a, a bloody ground, just a horrible scene. I cannot imagine and neither can you, somebody who would take a child, an infant, and burn them alive in a way to placate God. It's just unimaginable. So Gehenna then became a place where God would then judge them for what they had done to their children. So for their sins of idolatry, Judah was going to be punished in the very same place in this valley of Hinnom. It would become a place of condemnation. And that condemnation was judgment for their sin. It wasn't an eternal judgment in the future. It was a judgment that occurred the first time in the valley of Hinnom in 586 B.C. And in Jeremiah 19.6, Jeremiah predicted that for punishment for their sins, that that very same valley that had witnessed the death of their children would witness their death at the hands of foreign invaders, and that is where they would in turn uh, be, be buried as they were slaughtered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Jeremiah 7, 31 and 32 says this, they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no more room. That's the announcement. They will be so slaughtered by the Babylonians that they will bury until there's no more room. 
Jeremiah 19.6, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. So twice that is prophesied. So in terms of our conclusion, historically, the Valley of Hinnom was not used in the Old Testament as a reference to future eternal judgment in the, in the lake of fire, but as a place of divine discipline, a place of divine judgment or condemnation on historical Israel in 586 B.C. because of their spiritual failure, because of their spiritual idolatry, because of their rejection of the message of the prophets and the and God's plan of salvation. And so it became a symbol for spiritual failure, for condemnation and shame and divine discipline in time and not in eternity. Now this is used in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or fool, shall be in danger of the council. Notice, you'll, first you're in danger uh, of judgment, some sort of minimal condemnation. Then it steps up. You have to go before the council and be uh, judged at the council. And then he says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Literally, that is in danger of the valley of Hinnom. And then a few verses later, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into the valley of Hinnom. Now, when we look at this, the Valley of Enom or Gehenna is taken to be one of two things again. It's either eternal condemnation or it's temporal judgment. Now, most people take it and interpret it as eternal condemnation. That's why it's translated hell. They're saying this is because of of, uh, you commit this, you're in danger of hell. Now, the Arminians, that is, those who do not believe in eternal security, will come and say, see, this is a passage that says that even if you trust in Jesus, if you hate your brother, you're going to lose your salvation and you're in danger of judgment in the lake of fire. Now, when I taught this a couple of years ago, back in, or maybe even three years ago, back in Lesson 29, uh, there was a new member of the congregation who'd been here maybe five or six weeks, and she actually, she's not here this morning. She actually serves in the chaplain's office at the jail, and she tr- really studied that lesson. And I got a call maybe five or six months later from David Dunn over at Grace Bible Church, who works down also down in the jail, and he said, he said, I got to tell you this story. He said, I was down there at the jail, and we've got this guy who's an Arminian, and he's always coming up with these um, these objections to eternal security. And so he came up to me the other day, and he came up with Matthew 5.22, and he said, how, do you ha- how can you believe in eternal security when this passage says that if you hate your brother, you're going to go to hell? See, that's what it looks like. If you take the... Take Gehenna as eternal condemnation, that's where you're forced to go. No eternal security. And David said, before I could begin to answer, this chaplain assistant started taking him through the Old Testament passages on the Valley of Hinnom, explaining to him exactly what the Valley of Gehenna was used for and what it signified, and then walked him into the New Testament and went through it. And David said, my mouth was hanging wide open. (laughs) 
And I, afterwards he said, where in the world did you learn that? And, uh, of course, this is how David would have answered it, but not too many people are taught that well. And he, she said, well, I got it from my pastor. And he said, well, who's your pastor? And she said, well, Robbie Dean is my pastor. David said, well, of course. <laughs> Makes perfect sense now. So this is the issue. So if this describes the eternal judgment in the lake of fire, then we have to throw out eternal security. There are sins Jesus didn't pay for. There are sins God uh, wasn't aware of in his omniscience. And that just doesn't fit with many, many passages of Scripture. So what he's talking about, it, what Jesus is talking about, is if you continue in certain sins, then you run the risk of divine discipline in your life. And what he's going to say to the uh, disciples, is the, I mean to the Pharisees, is the same thing. And that is that you're risking, you're risking divine judgment on the nation. That's what he's saying in Matthew 23. We'll see that in just a minute. Matthew 10, 28 is another passage. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is in the valley of Hinnom. That is divine judgment. He's not in, turn, in time. Fear the one who can bring you under divine discipline for your disobedience and, and rebellion. This is the same thing he's saying in the parallel passage in Luke 12:5. Now, in our passage, when he refers in back in verse 15, he referred to the Pharisees as sons of the valley of Hinnom. They are identified with that kind of judgment. They're bringing another form of idolatry into Israel that is just as destructive. And therefore, he is saying that that he condemns the Pharisees because you are uh, you are uh, recruiting these proselytes, and they're going to be just as much a part of the condemnation as you are. And then, when he comes to verse uh, verse thirty three here, he says, uh, "Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna?" And that condemnation is looking forward. That's what we'll see in the next two chapters. To, uh, well, actually, this is looking forward to the destruction in 70 A.D. The second time the temple's destroyed is for idolatry just as the first time, but it's not a physical idolatry where you're worshiping idols of wood, stone, and metal, but it is a spiritual idolatry where you're worshiping uh, your, your own false set of standards, your own uh, religious ideas. Now, when we look at this and study this, one objection that comes up that people may may uh, ask is, well, there are places where the fire of Gehenna is said to be eternal. How do we understand that? That would seem like that would be the lake of fire. One place that we have this is in Isaiah 66, 24, which says, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die. That's talking about the maggots who are continually feasting on the corpse. And their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. But see, that's talking literally about these corpses. It's not talking about the lake of fire, that it is just using that term uh, to refer to something that goes on for a long period of time. 
because in the context, those bodies are not going to be eternally uh, consumed. The physical body is corrupt in the grave, so it, it can't be talking about eternal. Jeremiah 17, 4, and uh, says the same kind of thing, as well as in Jeremiah 21, 12, where, it talks about, where God says to Israel in Jeremiah 17, 4, For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. But God is not still angry with Israel. So that term, burnt forever, is hyperbole. He did not burn in his anger against Israel forever and ever. That, that judgment was culminated in 586. Jeremiah 21, 12, uh, he's going to announce his judgment then on the house of David. And he says, and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Well, that had a temporal reference point. It didn't does not always mean eternal. Uh, the word ionos in the, in, in the Greek uh, does not always mean eternal. You have to look at the passage. So these these passages are simply using uh, hyperbole uh, to express the the seriousness of the uh, of the punishment. Uh, the Hebrew word olam has the same same connotation. So when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and calls them brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of the valley of Gehenna? He's talking about the same thing, a temporal judgment. Well, then Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, he says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And so he is talking about what he will do. He, he, Jesus now is going to send representatives. Notice this is a subtle claim for deity also, because previously he talks about how the prophets were sent by God. Now he is saying he will send prophets and wise men and, and scribes. So he takes upon himself the, the position of deity and the one uh, sending these. So he talks about this is prophecy of what will take place in, in the uh, apostolic age. Some of them you will kill and crucify. That took place uh, through the agents. Many of that, them took place through the agency of Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. Paul got some of that along the way where he talks about this in Second uh, Corinthians, how he was scourged and how he was beaten and how he was left for dead. And also we know that he was persecuted by uh, those in Jewish synagogues who followed him from city, uh, city to city. So this is fulfilled in the, um, uh, in the New, New Testament. Uh, we see a reference to this also in uh, Acts 7, in 54 to 60, where the Jewish religious leaders stoned Stephen, and later there would be others who would be crucified. And then in verse 35, he says, um, Jesus goes on to say that on you, that is on your generation, may come, that is, you are going to also um, be included in the punishment May come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered from the temple and the altar. 
Now, Abel starts with A, and Zechariah starts with Z, but Jesus isn't talking about everyone from A to Z. This is, that's not how the Hebrew alphabet is organized. Jesus is talking about the very first death of a righteous person in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain murdered Abel. The way the Hebrew Bible is organized, Second Chronicles is the last book, the last book in the section of the writings, not Malachi. So in the organization of the Hebrew Bible, the last person who is killed is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus says this is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. So that, that presents a problem. And there's no certain solution to this problem, but there are two or three options that are uh, very reasonable ways of explaining this. This is most likely referring to uh, what occurred in Second Chronicles 24.20. Uh, we're told there that the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, uh, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. Now, he, it just, it, 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 the word son can be descendant of. So it could be his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-great-grandfather. It doesn't have to be his immediate father. Um, so his father could have been named Barakai. These names are very, very common. It, just like recently there was a tomb that was discovered that had an ossuary um, that was uh, uh, Yeshua, the son of Yosef. And, of course, the liberals are all leaping to the conclusion, ah, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. We've got his ossuary here. Well, Joseph and Jesus were extremely common names, you know, like Bill or Mark or Tom in, in our culture. And so to, there, there were probably dozens of people who were named Jesus, whose father's name was Joseph, just as at the time of Zechariah, there were probably many who were born to fathers who were named Berechiah. So this was a very, uh, a very common name. But the connection in Second Chronicles is because this is during the reign of Joash, is to connect this prophet Zechariah to the high priest Jehoiada, who was responsible for a great revival during that particular time. So that's why you would not go to the immediate. Uh, to the immediate father. And we're told in verse 21, so they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. And so this is just another example of ongoing negative volition, and it reminds us very much of uh, what is going on uh, throughout all of history, the rejection of God and his messengers. So two things we need to note about this verse in, um, in Matthew. First of all, uh, this is a pattern of rejection of God's prophets. And as such, Israel stands as a paradigm, as, as a representative of the entire human race, that no matter what the evidence uh, or the rationale or the logical issues may be, rejection of God, rejection of his word, rejection of the Messiah is not a rational issue. You can't argue somebody to faith in Christ by reason. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't 
use reason as a way of pointing out flaws in their reason or that belief in Jesus is rational. But the ultimate problem isn't rational. The ultimate problem is spiritual. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 and 19. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Romans 1 says that there's the witness of the heavens that is more than enough to hold everybody accountable, but in addition to that, every single human being who's created in the image and likeness of God knows that God exists, but they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The second thing that we need to understand that we can learn from this passage is that at the time of Jesus, the Old Testament canon was set. That's important because we know that that later books were not were, were not added. If you come from a Catholic background, you know about the set of books called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha was never accepted by uh, Jews as part of the Old Testament scripture. It would change the order of the books. The uh, Apocrypha wasn't accepted officially by Christians until the Roman Catholic Church accepted it as part of the canon at the Council of Trent in the 1540s after the Protestant Reformation. It was part of their reaction uh, to, to the Protestants. But this tells us that by the time of Jesus, the canon was already set and accepted. It began with Genesis and ended with Second Chronicles, just like the present canon of the, of the Old Testament. And then Jesus says in verse 36, Assuredly I say to you that all these things, that condemnation, that judgment of Hinnom, all of these things will come upon this generation. You have rejected the Messiah. You are going to be judged for it. Now, there are some people who take this generation to refer to all Jews, and that's part of anti-Semitism. It's not talking about uh, all the Jews. It's talking about this particular generation. Others have tried to extrapolate this to refer to all unbelievers. He's talking about what is happening then, and it refers to uh, what will occur in AD 70. But there are others who try to make this uh, refer to uh, many other things, but we have to understand it in its historical, literal context. And then Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, that's been their uh, modus operandi, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Two things we should note about this verse. Number one, the will of God is to save people. The will of God is to gather them under his wings. The will of God is to bring people into salvation, but he is not going to override human volition. This is the error present in Calvinism. It is a a determinism that uh, they hold to. Jesus says, I wanted to do this. This is God's will, is to gather them, to save as many as he can. The problem is individuals are not willing. Why? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so the judgment is announced. See, he says, your house, and here this is a reference to the temple, your house is left to you desolate. So this means that at this point, and actually since Matthew 12, that... Uh, the destiny, 
the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will be set. He has set their house uh, desolate, and so the armies of Titus of Rome came in and completely destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. And then in Matthew 24, 1, as Jesus leaves there and he goes away from the temple and he was going over to the Mount of Olives, his disciples are going to ask him a question and they question him about the buildings of the temple. Is that what you're referring to? That the temple is what will be destroyed. The temple is what will be abandoned. Literally, that's what that word means in the, in the Greek is to be abandoned, that this is going to be abandoned. And then Jesus' answer to that, which will set up, uh, the next chapters, Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And if you go to Israel, you go to the Temple Mount, you will see this is an extension of the Western Wall. If you go a little bit further down to the left, you would come to the Western Wall Plaza where uh, Jews come to pray. And what you have left here is these huge, massive stones. These were part of the wall that surrounded the temple complex at the time of Herod. These were the stones that were pushed down uh at that at that time, and you see a little broader look of it here. Uh, you see uh, uh, much of this rubble. Here's a pile of stones right over here, and you see these massive craters in the pavement where these stones landed as they came down from the wall. Uh, one uh, man once asked me, said, well, the scripture says that not one stone will be left on another, but it looks to me like there are all these stones left at the, at the western wall that one on top of another. It doesn't seem like scripture was fulfilled. But the question is, the buildings of the temple, what you see with the western wall is simply a restraining wall that was built uh, on the temple complex so that all of the weight from the buildings would not cause uh, this to, the land to spread out, and you'd have a stable foundation. So this isn't what Jesus is talking about. This isn't what he's asked about. He's asked about the buildings, not about the, the, the restraining wall. So this has nothing to do with the lack of fulfillment. But what we see here is the remains of what happened in A.D. 70. So what this to con- wrap this up, what we see here is this condemnation that is announced on that generation. And Jesus then finishes up in Matthew um, twenty-three thirty-nine, and he says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 118, 26. We studied this before. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, when he's presented as the king, and we have on, on Palm Sunday, they were singing Psalm 118. They were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But those were Jesus' followers. Now he is saying, until the nation as a whole and the religious leaders of Israel welcome him as the Messiah, he will not, he will not come. And so the focus at this point shifts to another coming, to a second coming. And that will be the topic of the next two verses. Not the rapture. But the second coming of Christ, that's the question the disciples will ask, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age, not the signs of the rapture. So we'll look at that in about three weeks.
In the meantime, we're going to focus on the birth of our Lord in the next three Sundays up to Christmas, and then we'll start the new year uh, with the study of prophecy in Matthew 24 and 25, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to be reminded that there is an accountability on each of us in our response to your word, and especially upon those who are negative to your word, those who have rejected. They are in the paths of those uh, Israelites who punished the prophets and of the Pharisees who crucified Jesus, and there is a judgment and accountability on all who reject your word. Father, we pray for anyone listening today that, that they would recognize that there is accountability in the universe, accountability in life, and the only way to avoid the eternal condemnation of the lake of fire is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, that he did it all, that we can't work our way to heaven, we can't do things to please you. The only thing that has pleased you is the substitutionary uh, death of Christ. He died for us. And the only way that we secure that in our behalf is to trust in you. Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone listening to this message today. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with our response to your word, that we would be willing to make that the highest priority of our life is to learn it, to study it, to apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.